you know, and wisdom and holiness are not separate things. I think if you're walking in wisdom, you're probably also walking in holiness, you know, or in faith or whatever else. And that wisdom, and we'll see this more as we get into Proverbs and, and the wisdom literature itself, that wisdom, I think, in the Bible is, it's almost like the craft of life, like how to mm-hmm. live a life well lived. Welcome back to episode 23 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our weekly podcast where we discuss the upcoming week's readings from our chronological reading plan, chew on the most interesting bits, and answer any questions that we've been sent. I do want to, right at the beginning, make a correction to last week's podcast. In my describing of certain words in the Hebrew, I mixed together two of them. The words nefesh and ruach, which separately mean something like life and spirit, I kind of combined as I was telling. They were separated in my notes, and I know the difference. I'm not sure what happened there, but the ideas were accurate. They were just for two words rather than one. This next week, we are reading 1 Kings 2 through 9, 2 Chronicles 1 through 7, and Psalm 50 and 73 through 83. And uh, the narratives in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles tell us about the beginning of Solomon's reign, his asking for wisdom from Yahweh, and his building and dedication of the temple and bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. Uh, This is a culmination of a lot of the themes that we have seen running from Genesis. Uh, There is a lot of Genesis imagery and language reflected in these stories that at long last in a, a, uh, I don't want to say permanent way because it's not permanent, but a settled way, God has come to dwell with his people. Um, You know, and so everything that was true of the tabernacle is also true of the temple with the added fact that the temple is stationary, obviously, it doesn't move around. And what that means is, is that the people have settled. They're in the promised land, they're in the garden, they're back, you know, that's been been restored. And now Solomon has built this temple, he's built this palace for the creator, and the Ark of the Covenant is in it, so he's taken up residence there, and they can kind of get back to the business of, of what Adam and Eve were originally supposed to be doing. You know, we see a, a focus as well on Levites in the story and just the ministers at the temple. And that I think also hooks back into uh, kind of the, the original priestly function, so to speak, of, of Adam and Eve. Uh, and also the whole nation, you know, in, in Exodus uh, 19, Yahweh talks about how they're all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And while by the time we get to First Kings and Second Chronicles, that has at least formally kind of narrowed to the Levite tribe and the high priestly families, uh, especially, they are ministering on behalf of all of the people in the temple with God. And so we, we just see that um, as a, yeah, like I said, it's just a culmination of a lot of these themes that we've seen since Genesis. I think wisdom as well, you know, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And other places in the Bible, that's the definition of what wisdom is, is being able to discern the difference between good and evil. And so Solomon asking for wisdom and then getting it, you know, so that he may discern between good and evil. I mean, that is obviously a a, uh, uh, a flashback, you know, a connection to the Genesis story in that there's a human now who 
uh, is granted that wisdom that I think Adam and Eve would have had eventually, but took for themselves. Solomon asked for it, and, and Yahweh was pleased to give it to him. And then we're also reading actually not the Psalms that I thought we were supposed to be reading, but just, just Psalm 72 and 127. And Psalm 72 is attributed to Solomon, or is for Solomon, or it's at least about Solomon, and just kind of about what what it is to be a good king. Um, and so we see that, uh, yeah, just d- detailing what a righteous king of Israel and Judah would be. Certainly a lot of resonance with the, the life and the ministry of Jesus in Psalm 72. So the first, the first question I want to ask you regards the census. So when David takes a census, it's, it's a bad thing. But we find out in Second Chronicles 2 that Solomon takes a census almost uh, at the very beginning of his reign. It's in verse 17. Solomon took a census of all the foreigners in the land of Israel, like the census his father had taken, and he counted 153,600. He assigned 70,000 of them as common laborers, 80,000 as quarry workers in the hill country, and 3,600 as foremen. There's nothing listed about this or nothing said about this being a bad thing but David's census by the chronicler is a bad thing so what's the difference between David's census and Solomon's census I think there's a couple differences like we talked about you know I think that we know that censuses themselves are not bad because they take censuses all the time and so there is something about why David was asking those questions that was sinful uh, David specifically counts the fighting men, and so that's different than what Solomon is doing. He's taking account of how many foreigners do we have to conscript for the labor of the temple. So those are two very different things. So I think it's as simple as that. So I've heard people say that Solomon doesn't ask for holiness. Solomon doesn't ask for faith. He doesn't ask for knowing um, I shouldn't say that. He does ask for what will help him to know the will of God. But he doesn't ask for something like holiness or faithfulness. He asks for wisdom. Is that the best thing he could ask for? Are we supposed to read this that way? Or are we supposed to read this as he asked for something better than riches, but not as good as he could have? Yeah. You know, I think that, that it's not a bad question, but I think it does reveals a lot about the concepts and just our, our hearts that we're bringing into like what we think the Bible is for. So if the Bible's principally about teaching us the things that we're not supposed to do so we can go to heaven when we die, well then no, Solomon probably could have asked for better things. But that's not what the Bible's teaching us. The Bible is wanting to form us in wisdom, in Christ's likeness, which are the same thing. Christ is the wisdom of God, as Paul tells us in Corinthians. And so no, I, I don't think we're supposed to read Solomon's requests as a failure or anything like that. Like I said, I think it loops back into the Garden of Eden story in that he is asking for the original original destiny, I guess, for, for humankind is to be wise kings, is to be wise stewards. You know, and wisdom and holiness are not separate things. I think if you're walking in wisdom, you're probably also walking in holiness, you know, or in faith or whatever else. And that wisdom, and we'll see this more as we get into Proverbs and, and the wisdom literature itself, that wisdom, I think, in the Bible is, it's almost like the craft of life, like how to mm-hmm. live a life well lived. That's actually what the word means. In, <clears throat> well, in there Hebrew. you go. And so, you know, I think that it, it's a synthesizing uh, thing, right? So faith is just one department. Holiness is one department, you know, whatever else. Whereas wisdom is sort of saying, how do I, 
how do I tie all of these things together into into one life, into a life of wholeness, into a life of shalom? Again, that's what Solomon's name means. Uh, and so, no, yeah, I think that I think that we can see Sol- Solomon is being, especially in Chronicles, he is being set up as a second Adam. I mean, this is a second coming of Eden with the temple and with him asking for wisdom and just the wealth and the abundance. It's it's a second coming of Eden, but it's also a development of Eden, right? Because Eden was just a garden, whereas Jerusalem is a garden city. I mean, Solomon is built up, you know, the infrastructure of the city and the temple itself and, and all these other things. So now, you know, as the story goes on, we will see him that begin to crumble and him begin to fail. And we also, right at the very beginning, as you pointed out, Second Chronicles chapter 2, how does he build this garden city? Through conscripted slave labor <laughs> foreigners. I mean, it's, it's undermined from the very beginning. You know, and the Bible makes no attempt to hide that from us. You know, I mean, but at the same time, yeah, I think that we're, that, that, that's cluing us into Solomon being a, perhaps the closest we've come to a true human so far in the biblical story besides Adam and Eve themselves. The idea of wisdom, I think, when we talk about it today in English, usually means something like knowing what to do in a given circumstance. And that's not a terrible way for us to look at wisdom, but it is a richer word in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind it is having an accurate view of the world, your part in it, and knowing what to do because of that, right? right? So that's why Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom and holiness are not separate ideas because wisdom leads you to holiness. If you are wise, then you know that there is a God who is your creator and sustainer that you should worship and you know how to do that, right? And so I think that he does. He asks for the very best thing. And it's revelatory of his heart at this time because, I mean, when Yahweh, the creator of the universe, comes to you and says, I'll give you anything you want, um, what do you want? And you you could say, make me the richest man that will ever live. Mm-hmm. You could say, make me more powerful than anyone else. And you instead ask to be good at being king. That is, that's Well, that's not even just to be good at being king, but just to be good at being a human. Human, yeah. The best human I can be. Mm-hmm. You know, which then obviously means being a good king. You know, if you're, if you're a good man, if you're a good human. Right after... Solomon asks for wisdom. There's this story about Solomon's wisdom kind of being displayed. And it's two women, they're prostitutes, we're told, come in before him. And they were both new mothers. One of them, apparently, rolled over on their baby in the night and took their dead baby and put it in the arms of another woman and took her living baby for herself. And they're brought before Solomon. And each says, no, this is my baby. And he, he says, I know what we'll do. We'll split the baby in half so each woman can have their half. And then one of them is opposed to that. And the other says, that sounds great. What? Like, what? what's happening there? So, again, I think this is one of those times where we want things to be just all spelled out for us and, and the punchline to have flashing lights attached to it. It's important, I think, to realize Solomon was never going to cut that baby in half. Like, right. that was not going to happen. <laughs> Right. He had a sword brought to him, not because he actually intended to cut the baby in half. He was not going to cut the baby in half. I think that in his wisdom, he understood what was going to happen, which is what happened. That the real mother was like, no, no, don't do that. 
you know, and the, 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 the fake mother, the lying mother was like, yeah, great. You know, my baby's dead. So let's have everybody's babies be dead. It's a little jarring, right. To, to, uh, to think about cutting a baby in half and how, you know, but yeah, I think that they're, excuse me, he was never going to, the baby was never going to be harmed. I think it was a, it was a test in terms of, I think how we see the Lord test people like Abraham was never going to hurt Isaac. That was never going to happen. I mean, Abraham thought he was going to, just right, like that was never Yahweh's the real intention. mother really thought her baby was going to be cut in half, but Yahweh was never going to let Isaac be harmed. Um, and so, you know, and again, you can kind of see this testing motif throughout Scripture uh, that the test is real, but the threat is not, if that makes sense. And sure. so I think that, I think that in... in I think that this is an immediate example of Solomon exercising Yahweh's exact style of wisdom that he sets this test before these women. No, no, the danger is not real, at least in terms of Solomon's thinking, and he has the power to make it so. Whereas for the people being tested, it's a, it's a real test, and and the one mother, the real mother, passes, and and the other one fails. Can I give you what I I have a little bit of a different take sure. on this story? And so I recognize that this is not the common um, take for it. But having a baby at this time was an important social thing, right? There was a social credit that came to, to having a baby. And the hope that one of the women would be more concerned with the life of the child than with the social credit. I don't know that the there was a way to know that the real mother is the one that would say, no, don't cut the baby in half. But whichever woman did say, no, don't cut the baby in half, is the one Solomon intended to give the baby to and make the real mother of the baby. Because the one that's more concerned with the baby's life than is concerned with the social credibility of having the baby, I think is is who gets the baby. And so if you're the king, that's who you'd want the baby to go to. The one who recognizes the life of the child's more valuable than the honor that comes from having had one. And so I don't know when it says the real mother of the child, if it's saying that is the biological mother of the child in our terms, or if that's saying the deserving mother of the child. I'm honestly not sure. But I, I think that that may be what's in Solomon's mind. I'm sure that there are, and I think you're right, whether your specific points are right or not, I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but I think that there's certainly cultural, this is one of those things where there are cultural cues that we're missing just because we don't know. And not that they can't be known. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know. I would want to learn more about, you know, just those different dynamics in that day and age. And, and, uh, or if there are comparative, like where other ancient Kings faced with similar situations and what did they do? You know, Mm -hmm. like what is Solomon? Is there like a comparison to, Oh, I think there Other is another story. Ancient Near similar. East yeah. kings who who were faced with these sorts of things, and um, and I think as well that there's in in keeping with this idea of the testing and, and kind of Yahweh testing his people as well, that their their sense of like how did you find what did justice look like in their quote unquote courts, you know, and like how did you arrive at a verdict? is different in some ways than how we would do it because we don't what we would do is we would interview everybody we would take blood samples we would figure and that would case close like the dna of the child you know and the other woman would be arrested for uh i guess at least neglect if not outright murder or 
third degree manslaughter. Whereas that there's nothing about that. Like the lady who killed her baby, she go go home. <laughs> you know, have a good rest of the day. Like they're we're not given any repercussions for her. And so just this idea of like the trial by ordeal, it was very something that was very common. In fact, I think almost exclusively in the ancient world that that's how you arrived. And certainly we, we see reflected in the laws and everything else that people can come and testify like, here's what happened, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so it's not that there wasn't room for testimony and, and evidence as we would understand it, but just that, that they would also do this sort of thing where they would say, you know, and, you know, like in medieval England, right? You would like the whole witch trial thing of like, well, we're going to toss this woman in the pond. And if she sinks and she's innocent, and if she floats and she's a witch. <laughs> Uh-huh. I don't know if that ever actually happened, but I know that's the caricature of some of the, you know, so in, in some ways it's a similar, a similar idea. I think on a theological level for Solomon is, you know, in keeping with, I'm going to, I'm going to approach this as God approaches testing the hearts of men and women. And then the answer, you know, will, will give us uh, the way forward or the response, I should say, their reactions will, will uh, give us the verdict. But what I'm wondering is if the reason that the prostitutes are named is not actually a commentary about the women, but a commentary about Solomon, that he is he is advocating for justice even among the hmm. the most marginalized or the least unclean. desirable, the most yeah. unclean in society. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very good point. Because two female prostitutes are probably are going coming to be before the, lowest. the king. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big deal. What it calls to mind is when uh, Pope Francis um, knelt down and washed the feet of prisoners. Oh, I thought you were going to say that when Pope Francis cut a baby in half <laughs> in 2018. <laughs> but that, well, but I mean, the picture of <clears throat> the highest of the high, right, as far as yeah, yeah, status, yeah. kneeling down and washing the feet of the lowest of the low. Yeah, um, and the picture, yeah. of course, of Jesus washing his apostles' right, feet comes to mind, right. too. The, the importance of, I mean, because when Moses is... In, front, in charge of the whole people, he creates lower and lower courts right. so that he doesn't have to do this. Solomon right, has right. undone that idea. Hmm. And I think that's fascinating. Well, or at least made it possible. And of course, we're not given the details, but sure. first, you know, whether, because p- lower cases could be brought to Moses just only if the lesser courts couldn't figure them out. Figure it out. Yeah. Well, because it's a, I mean, the first line of it is give the king your justice, O God. Mm-hmm. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So, I mean, there's just a lot of resonance here. Well, and this appears to be David's prayer for Solomon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper, you know, prostitutes. He has pity on the weak and the needy, saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So, no, I mean, I think it's just, it, it absolutely makes sense that, you know, Solomon is, at least, again, at the beginning of his reign, is embodying these ideas of, of a good and just and righteous and wise king who defends the cause of the poor and the needy. Second Chronicles chapter 7 has a point where Solomon has given this incredible prayer. And I actually will we'll have a question about that in particular in a moment. But one of the verses, or then the Lord responds to Solomon. He appears to Solomon after Solomon has dedicated the temple. And there's this verse, verse 14, that's kind of well known in Second Chronicles 7. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So when people talk about life verses, which is not something that that either you or I have ever talked about from the pulpit, but it is a pretty common Christian practice or just taking verses from the Old Testament that seem to have promises attached to them and applying them to their own lives today. This is one of the primary contenders for that. There's even a, is it Third Day that sings a song about this? Or Casting Crowns has a song that's that's kind of based on this verse. Is this something that we can apply to our lives meaningfully as individuals? Well, there's a couple layers to that question. <clears throat> so... I think I, I'm going to start from the end of your question and move backwards. Ooh, so okay. as individuals is tricky because the Bible is written to God's people and ought be applied by God's people and as a collective, as a community. And so is it true that God will care and bless and look after his people? Yes. Does that mean that my individual life will have no problems or issues? No, it does not. And we see that from the story of scripture, from the testimony of church history, and any of our life experience. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you haven't lived a life that's (laughs) problem-free? And so, well, and you weren't necessarily asking this, but like, looking over at our our uh, misguided brothers and sisters who are caught up in the prosperity gospel, you know, they're not wrong that God promises health and wealth and all these things. He just promises them to God's people as a whole. And those things are also tied to Christ's return, not necessarily in this, in this current uh, age, which that's a separate thing that we'll leave alone for now. But just again, this individual thing. So it's like, so if God promises wealth, does that mean that I get a nice car? No, it does not necessarily mean that. Might you get a nice car at some point in your life? Sure. Praise <laughs> God for that. But like, but those two things are not, they don't immediately follow from one to the other, right? Or if God will heal his people, does that mean that I will not die of this cancer? I don't have cancer, but just, you know, as an example. No, it doesn't. People, good Christians die of cancer all of the time. And that's not because God's promises are failing. It's just that we we have to understand that they're given to the whole family of faith, not to us as as necessarily as individuals. So that's that's that individual. Can we apply it to our lives? You know, yes, I think it's the short answer. Paul says in in Corinthians, First Corinthians, I think there's a sec, start of Second Corinthians that all God's promises are yes to us in the Messiah. So I think this would include that God's people are faithful as God's people humble themselves as God's people repent. Will we, will we see blessing flow from that? I think absolutely. And again, I think you can look through church history and see that happen. Does it last in the way that we tend, you know, no, not necessarily, you know, things aren't permanent in terms of like, well, we, fixed it and now it'll never be a problem again in human society right you know um the british empire abolished slavery you know in the 1820s that was a good thing it was led by people who followed jesus and revered the bible did that end you know the the issue of slavery in the world no it did not does that mean it wasn't significant what they did no it was significant what they did if this is your life first that's great. I think the emphasis should be on the prayer and the humility and the repentance, not so much on the, and then I'll get whatever I want. Because <laughs> that's not going to happen. 
Um, and I think again, in Jesus, do we have forgiveness? Absolutely. You know, do we have healing? Yes. Does that mean that, that that will be worked out fully in our lives now? No, it does not. You know, Jesus himself died of, of terrible wounds and affliction. It's like whatever God's healing means, it doesn't mean that we're delivered from, from all physical suffering and, and everything else in this present life. As well, people can, can use this sometimes as like, so this is why America needs to do Christian things, because then God will heal us. And I don't think they're wrong. But I think that we can get sidetracked. Let me put it this way. I think that this is a direction or this is a this is something for the church to grapple with and to live out, not to force the rest of our communities and cities to do things that they have no conviction to do. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like it, this should start with the church. We should be humble and penitent and be turning to the Lord before we look at our Muslim or non-believing or gay neighbors and tell them that they need to start living their lives differently. I want to ask, so the prayer that Solomon prays before God answers, we're told that he kneels down and raises his hands out. Yep. Um, and spread his hands out toward heaven. Now, the picture that we have of that would be, a, I mean, in earlier it says his arms are open wide. So he's on his knees, his hands are open wide, and we imagine, I, at least I do, the Bible talks about people praying this way, he's looking up at heaven as well as he's praying. That isn't our typical prayer posture. Um, in fact, trying to find an example in the Bible where our specific prayer posture is given, the, the clasping of hands, especially with the fingers interlaced, you know, that's that's difficult to find there's a few places where we can we can infer that something like that is happening but most of the time it does seem like the posture is different why that difference and why do we pray with our hands clasped rather than our hands raised up to the heavens i mean we do that because that's what we were told to do so that's why we do it (laughs) okay other people in other cultures do it differently so and and you know i think it's a it, it's not it's not better or worse. I think that it's it is good to think about, you know, that our bodies matter, right? So we are resurrection people, so our bodies are not immaterial to our praying. And so what we do with them during prayer matters, you know, and you can test this right now, you know, or the next time that you are praying. If you're able, get down on the floor and kneel you know, and, and spend your prayer time on kneeling on the floor and just think about the difference that that makes, you know, and, uh, or do it like the Bible would do it. Go stand up, raise your arms, look at the sky, you know, and, uh, and pray that way. It seems, and you're right, you know, most of the time that prayer is described and we're given physical descriptions about what they're doing, they're kneeling or they're standing, their arms are upraised and their eyes are open and they're looking at, at the sky. They're looking at heaven. And uh, we see that as well in the ancient church. I think almost all of the depictions, like picture depictions, uh, the first centuries of the church, people are doing that as well. Um, That was also known outside of Judaism and Christianity. So like that was just sort of a, that was just the, it was just the posture of praying in the ancient world. That's just what you did. And so I think that's an important piece to this is that it's not that God is saying you must pray this way. Now, Paul does say in 1 Timothy that men should pray with holy hands upraised. 
So all of us out there who think that women should learn in quietness and submission should also think about whether our men should have their hands raised up in prayer because Paul says that exact thing a few sentences earlier. We'll get there in a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so, yeah, I I think it's just that 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 was what was common in the ancient world. And I think as as you kind of sit and think about, okay, so what does that what does that communicate? You know, that kneeling obviously communicates submission and humility and reverence. Kneeling is uncomfortable. Uh, it's hard to get up and down. You know, especially the older you get, you know, off your knees, and so there's much more of a. It's an offering. It's an offering. I mean, you are you are inconveniencing yourself rather than just sitting. You know, in a chair. I think that. I think that we, in Western Christianity, we close our eyes to minimize distractions. I think that it's one of those open secrets that our minds wander anyway, so I don't really know if that really matters or helps. (laughs) Uh, And that, you know, so Solomon prayed with his eyes open. You know, I think that there, and and this might be worth thinking about more as I'm as I'm sitting here thinking about it. Of just like, so our eyes are closed because are we talking to another person or are we like whispering sweet nothings to our own mind, <laughs> our own spirit? <clears throat> you know that when you're talking to someone, you look at them. <laughs> you know, and so I think there is a sense in which their eyes are open. They're looking at the vault of heaven. They're addressing the Creator. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, and and that's significant as well. And I think that arms being raised up and and palms open, you know, it's like we are we are asking God for things and hoping to receive it. And so I think that there's a receptive and we do that sometimes now, you know, if you're in a prayer meeting or whatever and, and you're prompted to kind of sit there with your palms open, you know, it's the same it's the same sort of thing. Or even like a a sense of like surrender or and I would want to I would want to look more into this, but I would even there there may even be an association with like children, and you know when a child runs up to a parent and puts their arms up to be picked up, you know that oh. there's some there's Ooh. some sense of like I mean just that that's what we're doing. We're asking God to hold us to to provide provide for us to protect us, um, and so I think all that's significant. Is it is it bad to close your eyes, fold your hands, and bow your heads? No, those communicate different things. And it's just good to think about why and what assumptions are being made about what we're doing, you know. Um, But yeah, and in terms of the actual history, I'm sure somebody has looked into it in terms of the change over time. I'm not uh, off the top of my head. I'm I'm not uh, familiar enough with it to speak to that. That's okay. The the clasping hands and bowing head became popular in medieval times as the need to submit to church leadership but also to see god as a um, very sovereign deity and our primary act was to submit and obey rather than to engage was kind of where that posture began it's interesting they had people close their eyes when i mean medieval churches were just so visual i don't know about the closing the eyes pieces i know the bowing the head and the clasping the hands piece it's just interesting so in our tradition you know we have minimized the body in worship yes we have and, or, or I should say, we have minimized the corporate posturing of the body. So, like, we rarely tell everyone to do the same thing. Well, stand up and sit down, and that's about it. Like, there's rare, like, and now everybody, whatever, do this special thing with your body. But it's all about what you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. But what's interesting about that is what that ter- what that has turned into is so we do nothing. <laughs> that's true. And again, just the assumption of like, well, why would I raise my hands? 
in a song. Why would I do that? You know, it's like, well, because it might actually, it might, it will change your experience because we're bodies. Like it does, it really does. It, 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 when, when I say it really does matter, it's not that you can't worship God or that, you know, all of that, but just that, that there is a reason you don't just think about hugging your spouse. You hug them. Right. <laughs> and that matters. Like we don't just think about shaking each other's hands on Sunday morning. We shake each other's hands and that matters like that. Is, that makes a difference. You know, mm-hmm. when we couldn't do that or, or did less of that during the pandemic, I it mean, mattered. it made a difference. Um, and so I think to, to discount what we do with our bodies in worship is a, is a grave flaw in, in a lot of kind of the low church Protestant thinking. Now, again, can that, can you fall off the horse the other way and, and do all these empty gestures that mean nothing? Sure. You know, you sure can, you know, like there is no, there is no way to avoid, you know, selfishness and idolatry. We just have to repent. That's, right. that's what we do. We repent and we we uh, just tr- keep trying to be faithful. But that's also why when we do like prayer labyrinths and things like that, I mean, we try and do different sorts of things that, that people don't normally when they pray. Just because there is a, there's a, there's just a broad range in history. There's a, and, and there's a bit of a broad range in scripture of just what quote unquote counts as prayer, you know, and, and that's not really the right way to say that, but just in terms of what, sure. what we can prayerfully do, you know, and, and I would say that really, I think what we're part of what we see in the unfolding of scripture is that prayer may start with the specific times when you bow your head and, and murmur quietly, you know, which is fine. But like, but you can actually start to, you can start to do other things prayerfully too. Like you can walk your dog prayerfully. You can clean your house prayerfully. You can cook dinner prayerfully. Yeah. You can play with your kids or grandkids prayerfully. You know, when Paul says to pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean don't do anything else all day except sit and murmur quietly. <laughs> like he's talking about incorporating <laughs> that that uh, the the reality of prayer into all the other things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. A great book about that is The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. If anyone would like to read about that kind of prayer, I have a resource for you. Our readings for this week take us pretty much to the end of Solomon. We will read about his death in a later in later passages, but all almost all of the things that happened during his reign that we are told about, we have read. And so... Of course, still coming up is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, these books that are attributed to Solomon that, or primarily to Solomon that tell us a lot about what his beliefs are, where his heart is. However, just with the narrative portion of Solomon's reign kind of coming to an end in our reading, I'd like to ask, what are the main points or lessons or ideas we should keep in mind when we're reading about Solomon, when we're thinking about Solomon? What's the Bible trying to communicate to us through the story of Solomon? there's a lot that uh, that could be said you know i think that like i said solomon is solomon is the culmination of he's like the mid-season finale of the old testament Ooh, let's put it like that he really is he's yeah the mid-season finale that the story's not over yet but like a lot of the themes and things are culminating and kind of reaching a point of of uh not end but just certainly you know development or or just Culmination. I mean, I, I that I can't think of another word than that. You know that that he is the second Adam. Uh, he is the he is the son of peace, or you know he is peace. Uh, Shalom, Shalom, and Shlomo. He's built a temple. 
the temple. You know, Yahweh is settled with his people. They are secure in the land. The territory seems to be most extensive under Solomon's reign. It's the largest that the the Garden Kingdom will ever be uh, until the the Messianic age, <laughs> and uh, when it encompasses the whole world. But just that you know, you just see all these these fulfillments. You know that he is. He is the good human, you know, who who receives wisdom. The Queen of Sheba comes as kind of an Eve figure. I mean, I don't think there's any... I don't know. I know that it's kind of an open open question as to whether Sheba and Solomon were lovers or if that was just a state visit or whatever. We don't need to get into that. I don't think they were, but I know that there's some some uh, uh, discussion about that. But, but I think there is a certain sense of, like, the man and woman motif there. You know, mm-hmm. Sheba is coming... For wisdom, I mean that's what she's coming because she's heard of Solomon's wisdom and he shares that with her and and uh, you know so just all of that you know the good king and he has a good king at least at the beginning you know and so I think that there's there's we see all of that and Solomon is setting Solomon is different than David in a lot of ways uh, but I think that Solomon is sort of the the uh, he is the expectation setter like okay this is what generally speaking you know between david and solomon that's what a good righteous king looks like and i think connected with that i mean there is that that it is the tragedy of of humankind again kind of re-ascribed in terms of that we started solomon starts in wisdom and wealth and plenty and he leaves the kingdom in in maybe not bad shape immediately but all it takes is his son you know to to overreach and then it the kingdom snaps in half and, and is never whole again you know so it, it it doesn't last very long after Solomon's reign and we see the reverberations of that then throughout the rest of, of the stories of kings and chronicles of, of the decisions the of the Bible. And, and the mistakes that he made early Solomon young Solomon you know is is an ideal the ideal king the ideal man um, and you know, certainly leaves us wanting because he, he ends badly and then the rest of the kings obviously do not, it doesn't go great over the long term either. Um, and so I think that, yeah, the, the stories are just pointing us ahead to, you know, needing a king who completely embodies, you know, Solomon's wisdom and David's uh, passion for the Lord who, who really does fulfill like Psalm 72's hopes and expectations. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I got it myself. Uh, <laughs> I can dramatically quit. Do you want me to dramatically no! quit? Because I'm fine with that. I've been a terrible pastor. No, no. <laughs> I am a terrible pastor. You are not. I don't know why they keep rehiring me. <laughs>